Welcome to the Grace Point Church Podcast. Here at GPC, we want you to know God, love people, and live sent. From wherever you're listening, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. If you want to learn more about Grace Point, head over to gracepointchurch.net. And now, this week's message. A time together, I know that when you come to a service, and especially if this is your first time with us, if, and I've met some of you to, earlier today. Uh, wow, this, this is maybe uh, apropos. Or you, you thought you chose Grace Point, but maybe God chose Grace Point for you today to be here, to, to, especially if God's leading you into praying about where God would have you to be as a person, as an individual, as a family. But here's what I want to say about the church, my church, the, in all of its beauty and all of its imperfection. There's so many things out there in life that are beautiful and imperfect all rolled up into one. If you've never been to Africa, as we lived in Africa, seen hundreds of African sunsets, there is nothing more beautiful than an African sunset. There's nothing more captivating the colors, the the brilliancy of an African sunset. The problem with an African sunset is that most of them, you're looking at the sunset, but you're looking through a village that's probably stuck in abject poverty. So you have beauty and you have imperfection all rolled up into one. When you look at children, when I look at my grandchildren, I look at them and I see perfection, all right? Until they're with us. And then we see the imperfection come out. But they're so beautiful. I just had to throw another photo up there uh, so you could see them. The, the, the beauty and imperfection of life, it's all around us. The beauty and imperfection of the church is all around us. The church is a beautiful part of God's redemptive story. At the same time, it's an imperfect part. Whenever you look at the church and you see the beauty of it, and you just think about it from a very pragmatical point of view, the church is beautiful. When you look at it out there in the community and how we can make a difference in the community, you think for just a moment, what if the church did not exist any longer? What if, well, let's just say, for example, let's get real creative here. Let's say in a, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that all of a sudden that the church would just disappear, be raptured. I mean, I'm just making this all up, but let's just say that that would happen. And all of a sudden the church was gone. What would it mean to the communities uh, in, just inside of America alone? The, the social impact of what would happen to our society, the homelessness and the crisis pregnancies and the and the, the women's shelters that are out there the, or the orphanages that are out there or the hospitals that are out there or the educational institutions that are out there that are all funded or instituted or initiated by the church in just a week-to-week basis. On, uh, here at Grace Point, we're constantly helping somebody keep their lights on, keep the heat on or air conditioner on these days, whatever. So you think about that. What if we were just gone? What would the impact be? It's been estimated that it would cost the U.S. government $2.76 trillion, with a T, dollars to make up the gap between what the church does for the local community and what, what it would be without the church. $2 trillion dollars. 
And just last, just two weeks ago, whenever we did Hope in WA, let me just give you a snapshot into our world, into our life, into Grace Point Church. That one day weekend experience where we we're helping people outside the church, we we're helping people inside the church, 200 or so uh, uh, adults in this room being trained to be foster families and adoption. That whole weekend, the, the, the events of what, what happened with the students that were going on that are foster children, there's so much that makes up that weekend, $30,000. In one day, we invest in our community. So what I'm trying to say is, I'm not, I'm, tr- I'm not trying to say we're perfect. I'm trying to say there's some beautiful things about the church that we cannot miss when we talk about making an impact. This is what I would hope. I would hope that if Grace Point was gone in the twinkling of an eye, that Bentonville City Council would have to raise the taxes because that blessing, that benefit, that investment that we make would all of a sudden be gone. The church is imperfect though as well. You don't have to go very far to look at its imperfections. You don't have to turn on very many blogs or very many books or very many news outlets out there that you don't see sexual scandals. That you don't see money misappropriated through lack of accountability But you don't see pastors and elders manipulating, maybe maybe gaslighting and using their influence and their power to spiritually hurt people. Pastors themselves over the past 26 months have also experienced hurt from inside the church. The past... The past 26 months, there has been a double-digit increase in the number of pastors who are looking at stepping away from ministry location or ministry altogether. This past week, the Evangelical Lutheran Church out there alone has identified that in the past two years that they now have 600 churches that they have not pastors to fill them because the pastors have left the church, have left the ministry. So whether the abuse is happening from the top down or from the bottom up or from all points in between, there's a brokenness, there's a hurt, there's a pain. Then you come to the church and you experience a self-righteous hypocrisy. And then it's like people want to go, I am done with the church. I get it. I get it. And I do not want to in any way fly past that brush over that. Because I know that there's people in this room, there's people watching that won't come to a church because they've been hurt by the church, that that are watching right now just realizing that they need something, the tension is there, and they can't get here, or maybe you've experienced that hurt. And I want to start without even knowing what hurt you've experienced in the church, and I just want to say, I'm sorry. And I don't know the whole story. And I don't know both sides of the story, but I'm sorry that there would be pain like that in the church. We started 21 years ago. We'll celebrate our birthday, if you will, at Strategy Meeting Time. We do it every year. We started it with a statement 21 years ago that we wanted to be a church for those who'd given up on the church but hadn't given up on God. It's been our vision all the way through the past 21 years. We want to be a church for those who've given up on the church but haven't given up on God. Because we realize that there's a lot of people that went to church growing up, had bad experiences, 
It was not for them, whatever, whatever. And they walked away. And all of a sudden, they realized they still believe in a God. They still feel like they got to connect. How, how does it all fit together? And how, how can I be a part of that? There's, so again, there's this pull and push both into the church and away from the church all at the same time. And part of that is because God realizes that we need the church. That's why when he told his disciples six months before his death, burial, and resurrection, he told him his exit strategy, and he said this, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is not my idea. We might have started it 21 years ago, but we're only living in the plans of God, and we're only trying to operate in the plans of God. So this church is only a part of God. It's not about us. He will build his church. But then I go on and I read the other parts of Scripture, and it says this about the church, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27, talking coming in out of the context of how Jesus gave up his self, his life, and laid down his life for his church. He did this to present to himself as a glorious church without a spot or a wrinkle, any other blemish, Instead, she will be holy and without fault. You might be going, there's a delta there. There, There's a gap there. Because if if God says he's going to build his church and it's going to be blemishless, if that's even a word, it's going to be wrinkleless, and it's going to be holy, and the church experience that I see, read, or maybe have gone through myself, that's not what I've gone through, then how am I going to reconcile those two? Because if that's God's vision for his church and that's where he's leading us, how do we get there? Because that's the church I want to be a part of. Realizing that we are in the messy middle. We're in that mess where God is, I think in the past two years, if if I could say it like this, he has both been purging and purifying the church. From the top down, from the bottom up, from the inside out, there has been so, so much that has gone on. You have your Bibles open to the book of 1 Timothy. We're going to start a study through the pastoral letters, if you will. Paul wrote letters to churches. All of his letters were pretty much to churches, individuals in the church. But there were three letters that he wrote in particular that they called them the pastoral epistles or the pastoral letters. That they were written to individuals, Titus and Timothy, but they were written about the church and how the church is supposed to be and operate and function and exist. And so he lays so much out there. We're not going to do a verse by verse study. We're going to do a survey of them. We're going to see how God's church is supposed to be. We're going to also talk about why. It's not just how, but why. Why and how of the church that, that Jesus had a plan. And what we're going to see over the next few weeks is several things. We're going to see, beginning next week, we're going to talk about leadership in the church. We're going to talk about pastors and deacons and elders and how those work together as outlined in, again, 
1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, the three pastoral letters. We're also going to talk about how to minister to one another and how to care for one another and serve one another. We're going to talk about widows in, in there. We're going to, we're here, we're going to bring in women in ministry. Get ready for that one. And we're going to bring a heavy hitter in on that, on, on that Sunday. We're going to bring in the New Testament, uh, chair, professor Joey Dotson, uh, from Denver Seminary. He's going to come. I'm going to just like move over and let him give it to you. All right. About women in ministry because that creates a lot of controversy, doesn't it? Uh, directional, how, where are we going as a church and where, how are we impacting? And some people go, okay, that's a lot of how. It's a lot of how in there. I'm still stuck on the why. I'm still thinking, why, why, why bother? Why bother with the church? And, and the reality is that that tension, that push, and that pull that you might be experienced when you want to walk away because she's hurt you, the bride of Christ has hurt you. At the same time, you feel this draw. It's like, I'm not, I'm not complete without it. There, there, there's something about that. How do I reconcile the two? It's because when God made us, he made us to need each other. See, we were born dependent. Our training as parents, we train our children to be independent right? Launch one of these days. But really, the scripture points that God made us interdependent. It's not just get independent and do it on your own. Own your own faith, do your own thing, have your own church as you wherever you do what you do. I'm doing my own church. That's not how God designed it. In fact, he even says it like this out of the message in Hebrews chapter 10, 24 and 25. He says, let us See how to be inventive. Uh, We can be an encouraging love and helping out and not avoiding worshiping together as some are doing, but spurning each other on, especially as you see the big day approaching. We're called to encourage. We're called to help. We're called to love. We're called to worship. We're called to help people move forward and upward in in their life. That's what the church is supposed to do. Talk about interdependence. You see the value begin to come out. So before we go into the how, which we'll go in there next week, let's talk about the why. For those who may be still stuck in the why. Why the church? Why do I need the church? Let's look at... 1 Timothy chapter 3. Again, we're not doing verse by verse, so you see me jumping in the middle of 1 Timothy. We're doing a survey. We're, we're outlined it that way. And so 1 Timothy chapter 3, he gives us, uh, the I think, some very clear value markers of why. Now, Paul is writing to Timothy, Pastor Timothy, pastoring the church of Ephesus Paul spent more of his time at Ephesus than any other location. Three years there, he walks away, leaves Timothy in charge. And now what he's doing, Timothy is his protege, and he's training him to pastor, lead this church at Ephesus. Okay, that's the context. Now we pick up in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave. In the household of God, which is the church. The church of the living God. A pillar, a buttress of truth. Great indeed 
We confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world and taken up into glory. We look at this, I think there's at least three value adds. If you want to, we'll get, again, as practical as you can think about it. Why the church? Why bother with the church? Why, why be a part of a church? Why is being a part of a church so important? It's because of the value that, in part, is part of the value that it brings to your life. And again, this is only part, but we'll stick with this part today. Value number one. Value add to your life, my life. Number one is my church family is about belonging. My church family is about belonging. Connected to one another, interconnected, interdependent upon one another, accountable to one another, working with one another. We can do more together than we can ever do alone. In fact, when you look at all of the the New Testament from the time that Jesus introduces the concept of the church in Matthew chapter 16 all the way to Revelation, and you see the seven churches of the Revelation, every time you see that, of those 114 times the word church is used, 90 of them, 90 of them are a local church. The church at Ephesus, the church at Colossae, the church at Philippi, The church at Thyatira, it's a local community coming together, connected, interdependent upon one one another. The concept of church membership, of belonging, is actually a very biblical concept. You'll hear people say this. Oh, no, no, no. Church membership isn't biblical. I challenge you. If your schema, if your paradigm of church membership is similar to most people's Planet Fitness membership, then probably not. Where you get a membership, you pay your whatever it is, a dollar or two a month, ten dollars a month, and you show up every now and then once or twice a month to break out into a little bit of a sweat, but not to get too intense on this because the lurk alarm may go off. And so you, you, you kind of, ex- that's your concept of what church is. My friends, you're right. That's not in the Bible. Rotary club membership, social uh, groups, your, your fraternity or sorority. Mem- no, 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 no. When you look at the scriptures, the Bible speak clearly that there is a membership in the church. Romans chapter 12, verse 5. We, though many, there's many of us in this room, are one body in Christ, individually members one of another. So there is an interconnectedness, a sense of belonging, a sense of membership, a sense of I can't do it without you, you can't do it without me. None of us is more important than any of us. And that is what membership is talking about. Also, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. It says, for just as one body is one, for just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though uh, many are one body, so it is with Christ. So my friends, when you look at the scriptures, membership of a church is biblical. 
in the sense of not a gym membership or Rotary Club membership, but a body connected to body, body leaning on, depending upon one another. That is absolutely a part. You've seen it in Romans. You've seen it in First Corinthians. You see it in Ephesians. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. Each part or each member does its own special work. You have something to offer that I don't have. I have something to offer you don't have. And if we understand when God adds me to a church, he's adding me to belong, to be a part, to be a member, to contribute, to be a part of the body of Christ is a very significant thing because you have a special work. It helps other parts, members, grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. That's the church. Because you belong. It's kind of like you're right now, here's an illustration of this, you're right now looking at Mike McDaniel. But you're not. But you are. You're looking at Mike McDaniel's pinky, who this morning scratched his eye. You're looking at his thumb, who grabbed his cup of coffee. And I can't function without the coffee. I, you're looking at feet that are moving me around that enabled me to get here, to stand on the stage, to talk. You're hearing my mouth. You've got my brain. You've got my soul. I'm bringing it out. You're seeing a lot of parts of Mike McDaniel, a lot of members of Mike McDaniel that make up Mike McDaniel. The church is the same. We are members, all connected, all intertwined, belonging, interconnected, accountable to one another. With that in mind, look at verse 15 again. He says, In the household of God, which is the church. It's not only that we are members, but we're a part of a family unit. That family unit, the church of the living God. Not the idol God, not the dead God, not the one of 300 million Hindu gods, but the living God. The one who died on a cross, went to a grave, came back to life again. That God, that's the, that's the one that I'm a part of. That's the church that I'm a part of. But notice that he said, the household. Hoikos is the Greek word here, and it It's used 113 times in the New Testament, and it actually most of the time refers to biological or marital families, immediate family, extended family. Sometimes it even refers to networks. People interconnected with one another. He uses that phrase to refer to the church. When I talk to people that just like, "Uh, I don't know about church membership, it's for me. The best way I can illustrate it is it's the difference between living with someone and being married to someone. Sorry for the crude metaphor, but hang on to this. If I'm living with somebody, there's no really long-term commitment to this. There's nothing keeping me there. I can bounce anytime. They can bounce anytime. Now, I know in a world of no-fault divorce, and we can do it on a dime, no contest, whatever, but there's at least a marital agreement that hopefully we made before God in our family that said, when I'm married, I'm staying with you in sickness and in health till death us do part. I compare it to this. When I'm a member of a church, it's like it's my family. I'm married. I'm connected 
to a body versus I'm just dating the church. I'm just living with the church and I'll bounce at any given moment. We're called to be a church. I want to encourage you. Grace Point's not for everyone, but it's for some. And if God has called you to Grace Point, then ride and go through the seasons. Go through the ups and downs. It's fun to be a part of a church when it's springtime. Flowers are in bloom, lots of plentiful rain. Things begin to bud, come back to life again. That's a fun time to be a part of a church. You'll see people move from church to church through the springtimes, looking always for that greener grass, the grasses on the other side. Go through the church with the church, even in the winter. Survive a winter. Be there through the most difficult seasons and plant yourself because it's in the winters that your roots grow deep and watch God bloom you. Are you you belonging to a church? Number two, my church family is about becoming. It's about becoming. I want you to think about this in, in, in light of a continuum. There's perfection on one side, and then there's hopelessness and helplessness on the other side, okay? Here's a life principle for you. No one has arrived, and no one is hopeless and helpless. We're somewhere in that continuum. We're somewhere on that line. The problem is, is that whenever we have been able to conquer a sin, whenever we have been able to put something behind us, and yet we see somebody else still processing through it, we begin to get a little judgmental. And what we as a church and as a family is we got to realize, yes, God didn't just call us to become a part of something, to belong to something. He called us to become. He's moving us to become more and more like him. we got to remember, again, we're surveying First Timothy here today in these pastoral letters. We've got to remember what he says in chapter 1 of First Timothy. Why did Jesus come? Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world to save sinners. That's why people, until they realize that they're broken and they need a savior, they're a sinner in need of a savior, I see that person as hopeless. It's the person who embraces the fact that I am broken. I do need a savior. I do need help. I can't fix myself. I need a savior. That finally there's hope. Now you can move into that relationship and let God begin to shape you. Jesus came to save sinners. So let's look at verse 14. He says, if I delay, because he's wanting to come to be with him, you know that, uh, um, you know, as one ought, excuse me, I'm writing these things to you, it says in verse 14. I'm writing these things to you so that, purpose clause, if I delay you may know how you ought to behave. You may know how you ought to live. You may know how you ought to function. So it's not just that I belong, it's that I become. That God is making something, doing something in me, working in me. 
And again, if you go on into Second Timothy and you, and you read Second Timothy, what does it say? That God has given us his word for this very reason, this inspired word of God. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That's why this is the central figure of every worship planning service that we have. It's not what I think. It's not what Taylor wants to do. It's what does this book say? Because what we want to do is get people in line with his calling on their life. And so what does God give us? He gives us his word. What does the word do? It teaches us. It helps us to know what's right. It reproves us. It helps us to know when we're wrong. It corrects us. It it gets us right again. And it trains us. It keeps us right. That's the power of the word of God. That Purpose clause again, the man of God, woman of God may be complete equipped in every good work. See, God takes the broken, messy people that we are. And he says, I want you to be my church. I'm going to make you wrinkle free, blemish free. I'm going to take your messed up lives, your broken promises, your hypocrisy. I'm going to take all of that your scandals, but I'm going to make it right. I want to show you a better way. And if you just look at the disciples of Christ, we all know Judas. We all use Judas as an example because you don't want to be a Judas. But let's think about the other dudes, okay? If you think about Peter, he had foot and mouth disease. Every time he opened his mouth, he inserted his foot. You just read this story. You got James and John. They were named the sons of thunder. That wasn't because they were some big, bold, brashy kind of... That's because they're probably loud and obnoxious, probably a little narcissistic because they're constantly saying this about why we want to be on the right hand of the Father. Jesus is talking about going to the cross and dying and suffering. Hey, can we, when we get into glory, can we be beside you? They're narcissistic dudes, man. They're brothers. You have Philip, who's skeptical and negative and didn't believe that Jesus could feed the 5,000. Nathaniel and Bartholomew were prejudiced and opinionated. Matthew was a servant and a traitor of, his servant of Rome and a traitor of his own people. Right next to Matthew is Simon the Zealot. The Zealots hated Rome and were almost like homegrown terrorists. And so what does God do beautifully? He takes a Matthew traitor servant of Rome, puts him in his discipleship pool into his church, if you will, and brings in Simon the Zealot who would like to kill Matthew and puts them side by side and says, now let's go serve together. That's like taking a yellow dog Democrat and a card-carrying Republican and putting them in the same room and say, now love Jesus together. That's the level of what Jesus will do. Thomas One writer said he's a melancholy, mildly depressive and pessimistic. James, son of Alphaeus and Judas, uh, the son of of James were nobodies. Mary Magdalene had potentially a checkered past. What does God do? He takes us and he helps us to belong. But that he doesn't just say, hey, you belong. Then he helps us to live the way we ought to live. He calls us to a higher standard, the standard of a word that we probably don't throw around a lot. And he says this, I want to write, Paul Paul said, I want to write how you ought to behave. 
Well, Peter said it like this. He reminds us of what God said in the Old Testament. You shall be holy because I'm holy. God is trying to make us more like him. A part of the whole process of being this this beautifully imperfect church is that God is taking in the messed up, narcissistic, foot-and-mouth disease kind of people, and he is bringing them into his fold. And he's saying, I'm going to love you, I'm going to accept you, and I'm going to make you better than you are right now. That's what God wants to do through his church. A third value, if you will, is that my church family is about believing. Belonging gives me a, gives me a, a, a sense of family and community, of being loved and accepted, of being a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. Becoming gives me a, a sense of getting out of stuckness, out of the broken narcissistic ways of my own past, or maybe the narratives that I've been telling myself for years. It, it moves me out of that broken cycle of life and gives me a better, nobler, truer, righteous, holy path to pursue in, 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 as I become holy as he is holy. But it's also about believing. Believing not in anything but the truth of Scripture and the truth of our Savior. Notice verse 15, it says, the church of the living God, and then he defines what the church is, a pillar and a buttress of truth. A pillar. The Greek word stylos. The pillar was was something that Again, you got to remember the Greco-Roman world. You got to remember the Parthenon. You got to think about those kind of facilities that the, the Greeks were building. You also remember where's Paul writing? Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, or he's writing to Timothy, who's at Ephesus. Well, what's the big deal about Ephesus? If you've ever been to Ephesus, you know that the Temple Artemis was at the Temple Ephesus, or was it was in Ephesus, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. So when he talks about the church is the pillar of truth, immediately Timothy's thinking of the temple Artemis, this pillars, there were a hundred pillars. All of them were 90 feet tall, holding up a marble roof over the head of the temple of Artemis. It was massive. It was impressive. It was there as a statement. And if any of you have been to Greece and you've been to the Parthenon, Think about this. The temple Artemis was four times bigger than the Parthenon. It's ginormous. So what does he say? The church is that, is that stake in the ground, that banner of truth in a world that we're confused about our identity, in a world that we're confused about truth, in a world that our political party tells us what truth is and our news tells us what truth is, and we're so confused in this world, what we need to realize is the church has a space in this world that is not going to be met by politicians, it's not going to be met by education, it all has its place. It's not going to be met by your political party or your Fox News or CNN. It has to be met by the church. It is the church that is the pillar of truth. If we're finding our truth in any other source, we need to check it. It's also called a buttress. The buttress. So if you think about a pillar rises up high into the heavens, a buttress is actually the foundation that goes deep into the ground. 
These 90-foot columns that are standing, holding up the, the temple Artemis. It was not just that it was coming out of the ground, but it was solidly in the ground. And so whenever he says the church is the pillar and the buttress of truth, it's not just that we have a banner to raise, a message to give, a truth to declare, but we have a foundation that's unshakable. We're building our house on not sand, but on truth. And we've got to understand it as such. Been to Ephesus numerous times now. And you know, you one of the first places the tour guides will take you is to the temple of Artemis. And you know what is at the temple of Artemis right now? One, not 90, one pillar is standing. That's it. And the last time I was there, there was a bird's nest on top of that. That's an expensive bird's nest. It's an ancient, but that's all that's left of the temple of Artemis. That's why when we're here today, and I want to point this out to you, my friends, is that we have a truth. We have a, we have a pillar. We have a buttress. We, we own the truth that has lasted through the generations, that's gone through the seasons, that's gone through it all. That is what we are proclaiming. That is what we're building on. That's why I can't just buy into popular opinion out there just because it's popular. I gotta buy into something that is solidly built on something that has gone through the years. Now, where do I find this? I don't find it in a philosophy. I don't find it in a party. I don't find it in, find it in a person. When Jesus said, I'm the truth. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. If you want to talk about what the church belonging, yes. Talk about the church becoming, yes, I'm becoming. Also talk about what we're believing. What is our foundation? What am I building my life on? It's not on a person. So much church hurt has happened because of persons hurting other persons. And it's wrong. Trust has been broken because persons hurting persons. You don't focus on the person. You don't focus on the pastor. You don't focus on the founding pastor. You don't focus on the pastor who's got all the lights on him right now. You don't focus. This is, I'm not, it's not me. Please. What Paul does is he takes Timothy, verse 16, and I'll be finished He says this, great indeed we confess. This is a confessional statement. This is a hymn, some people believe, but it's at least a confessional. And people who will tell you, oh, Jesus wasn't declared as God until the 300s. Wrong-o. Here we're having first century. Paul's writing it out. This is what we believe about Jesus. He does everything in the same verb tense and the same noun uh, 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 form. He does it like this. He says, he was manifested in the flesh. Think of his incarnation. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Think about his baptism when the Spirit descends on him. He was seen by the angels. Go to Acts chapter 1, verse 10. When Jesus was ascended into heaven. The angels appeared. He was proclaimed among the nations. See, I believe this is a continuum. We're living in that last section, proclaiming him among the nations, that the world would believe in him. 
See, the message that we have is not just for us, as long as I'm warm, happy, and fed, as long as I have my faith figured out. No, 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 no. We have a message that is for the nations, a message that's for all to believe. So when he comes back and you read Revelations, you read Revelations 21 especially, he comes back again and he takes us with him in his glory to a new heaven and a new earth. That is the message of Jesus. That's what is my pillar. That is what is my buttress. And that is what I'm building my life on. That's what I want to build this church on. So that Mike McDaniel, when he falls off the face of this earth, when Mike McDaniel is called somewhere else, you're not looking at Mike McDaniel. You're looking at Jesus. A Lutheran pastor was had, uh, had the tradition and habits of... of Every time he would stand up on a Sunday morning, first words out of his mouth, the Lord be with you, is what he would say. The Lord be with you. The people would always say back to him, and also with you. The Lord be with you, and also with you. So let's try that today. The Lord be with you. That's how he start every service, every service. The Lord be with you. This One morning he gets up, he grabs the microphone, and he's fiddling with the microphone. He says, There's something wrong with this mic. And also with you. That's the reply he got back. Here's what, I'll make a deal with you. If you think Grace Point is awesome, good. I think it is. But we are still beautifully imperfect. And if you want to really see the imperfection, come hang out with me for half a day. I will give you multiple reasons of why, why in the world would I continue at that church? Because that pastor is a hot mess. I struggle with the same things you struggle with. Pride, temper, lust, envy. But man, I tell you what, I hope I'm becoming holy as he is holy. If you don't know Jesus today, let me just tell you that, that's the foundation. He will build his church on those who confess the name of Jesus and focus their attention on him. In the stillness of a moment here, I want you to really lean in and listen and let God speak to you. And maybe the first words as we talk about being my church, beautifully imperfect, is all of us getting real with Jesus about who we are and how we need Jesus how we need him to make the difference in our life because that's where it starts. Would you bow your heads with me? Take just a second. Listen. Listen to the still, small voice of God. Is he calling you to be his child? If he is right here where you're at, right where you're setting right now, just say to him, Jesus, I give my life to you. Jesus, I need you. I need you to be my pillar, the, the, the banner that I raise up in my life so that everyone knows where I am and who I am, whose I am. But also I will need you to be my buttress, my, my foundation on which I'm building on. I need you, Jesus. 
maybe today if you're struggling with, and this has even brought it back to the surface, hurts and pains and betrayals, I pray today the same grace that you live in, walk in, you will find that for the hurt and the pain. Because we are the household of God, the living God, the pillar and the buttress of truth. Father God, speak to us and we will listen. I pray we'll obey as well. Thanks for listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. To stay up to date on all things GPC, follow us at Grace Point NWA on Facebook or Instagram. As you go, be people who show and share Jesus in everyday conversations with everyday people. Live Scent.